0: Georgia is on everybody's mind these days as voters in the Peach State soon head to the polls to decide which party will control the Senate in the new Congress. So we are going to take a step back here on Politics in Question in this week's episode to talk about different modes of electing senators and their consequences for what happens inside the Senate. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute.
1: I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor at Marquette University.
2: And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New
0: America. So with everything happening in Georgia right now, I think it's helpful to ask just the obvious question. Why are two Senate seats up for grabs in the same state at the same time? I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to work like that, at least normally. And what are the consequences of choosing senators the way we choose them? And are there alternatives out there? How have we done it differently in the past? Well, we're going to tackle uh, these questions in this week's episode. And to help us, we have a very distinguished, a very uh, great guest here, Wendy Schiller. She's one of the top Congress scholars. And we're not appearing on Politics in Question. She's a professor of political science, also a professor of international and public affairs and chair of the political science uh, department at Brown University. But what makes Wendy's insights especially interesting, at least to me, is that she has experienced politics as a practitioner, having served on the staffs of both Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the Senate and Governor Mario Cuomo in New York. She's all, she's the author of several books and articles, including most recently, uh, Electing the Senate Indirect Democracy Before the 17th Amendment. And she has a chapter in the new edition of Congress Reconsidered with Larry Evans on the United States Senate. So, Wendy, Welcome.
3: Um, It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Before we get started, I want to just ask you real quick, before we even take our temperature on our our topic today and anything else, what was it like working for Moynihan?
3: Working for Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, right out of college uh, was very similar, actually, to my experience in graduate school when I I went to the University of Rochester, where I got my PhD, and I was fortunate uh, to work with Dick Fano uh, and uh, Linda Powell and Larry Bartels, uh, pretty well-known names in the field, amongst others, and also take classes with William Riker, who most reminded me, actually, of Senator Moynihan, it was as if you're in a graduate class every day. So when you would brief him or write a memo, he would correct your writing, he would ask you in-depth questions about the information you gave him, the data, the sources. So it was good training for graduate school.
0: Well, there's a fabulous documentary I saw uh, recently. I think it was on Netflix uh, on Moynihan. But my, my favorite story of Moynihan, again, before we get started is when he introduces a sense of the Senate resolution in the Senate in 1980 um, in response to the Heart Building. And it basically is that when they took the plastic sheeting off the Heart Building, for those of you who've been to Washington DC, it's not the prettiest building. And I always worked in the Russell Senate office building, although for a couple of years, I would, I'm embarrassed to say I did have an office in Heart. And, he, and the sense of the Senate resolution that he introduced was to to put the sheeting back up because the building was that ugly in his mind. Um, so, uh, I, I just, I really appreciate people with a good aesthetic sense these days. Well, here's
3: but, a backstory to that, just really quickly, that I think you'll find interesting, is that he was an active member of the Pennsylvania Avenue Redevelopment Corporation, and when they completed that with, I think, the Canadian Embassy um, and some other buildings, because it was a vision of uh, JFK, and uh, Moynihan worked for Arthur Goldberg at the Department of Labor for President Kennedy, and he had always remembered that that was something that Kennedy wanted to see accomplished. And it didn't happen until the late 80s. But when it did, Jackie Kennedy wrote Moynihan a letter thanking him for his work on, on, on fixing the aesthetics of Pennsylvania Avenue. And he framed that. And, um, and it was on his wall in his personal office in the Russell Senate office building. So it wasn't just the heart building. It was his sort of sense of what a nation's capital should look like.
0: That is, that is so fabulous. And I have the resolution here. It says, whereas the plastic cover has now been removed, revealing as feared a building whose banality is exceeded only by its, its expense. And whereas even in a democracy, there are things it is well, the people do not know about their government. Now, therefore, be it resolved that it is the sense of the Senate that the plastic cover be put back. It sounds like he also had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm.
3: He he did. You had to get his sense of humor, but it, it was he would used irony a lot, uh, but not too much sarcasm. Mostly irony, but it's just a just an example of of the concerns and the way senators viewed their job and what they represented, what they were responsible for, and a sense of something larger than themselves. And we can talk a little bit, hopefully, in this broadcast of whether we think that still is the case today in the United States Senate.
0: Well, I think that's exactly what we're talking about really is, you know, how we get senators and how we pick senators and how we get people like uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and others. And so here on Politics in Question, we like to begin each episode with a question to see what everyone thinks about the issue. And so the question this week is, what is the best way to pick our senators? And Wendy, I'm going to turn to you first and then Julia and Lee, and we'll go from there.
3: Well, uh, as many of you may or may not know, uh, the Constitution started with indirect elections where state legislatures, uh, basically the House and the Senate in each state would uh, were assigned the task of picking United States senators, uh, electing them, but in the state legislature. And that was the case from the very beginning to 1913. And then we went to direct elections. And uh, you can argue both ways. We'll have a conversation about that as we go forward. But I think in a democracy, uh, if you're if you're striving for democracy, direct election uh, creates more potential for accountability to more voters in a state than indirect elections. But there's a cost that comes with the process. Julia. Yeah. So it's possible at one point I had strong feelings about this and
1: even that I said those on this podcast. But right now I'm kind of thinking about it and realizing I I don't. It is clear to me that our people in our system kind of expect that important offices will be chosen by, um, by direct election. So I think it would be weird and confusing for people to, to directly elect the house and directly participate in presidential elections through the electoral college and, um, not directly vote for senators. I also think like, this is a really, my really deeply cynical take, um, which is that, you know, it doesn't even really matter because the, the R and the D uh, by the names are what's what's doing the work. So whether so whether those people would be selected by the state legislature or by the by the electorate, the outcome in any given contest might be different, but the dynamics um, of accountability or of, I, as I increasingly see it, lack of accountability uh, would be the same.
2: Lee. Yeah. So I mean. I- I really find it fascinating the extent to which uh, uh, repealing the the 17th Amendment has become a cause among conservatives. And I guess as far as I can gather, and maybe, James, you understand this better than I do, is that the rationale is that it would strengthen federalism and localism, which are are seen as as a good thing. Um, But my reading of history, and hopefully Wendy can flesh this out in a little bit more detail in the conversation, is that... Actually, probably the 17th Amendment did more to preserve federalism than, um, than kill it uh, because at the turn of the 20th century, when the, the movement for direct election of senators uh, kind of gained momentum, is that the state legislative elections were uh, were increased, that's the, the, the state legislature elections, were increasingly pegged to national Senate control, which basically deprived state uh, candidates of the ability to run on local issues because voters really cared about who, you know, who was going to be representing them in the Senate. And that actually uh, by uh, delinking Senate elections and state legislative elections actually allowed state legislative candidates to focus more on state issues and thus preserve some of the more local character. So, you know... kind of love to, love to get Wendy your your take on that and you know just kind of like you know, what, what what do you think would happen if we went back to indirect elections would that have any meaningful change would it be worth the, the effort to to get a constitutional amendment these
0: are all great observations and i think they're really pointing uh, the way towards a, a good conversation here and and i'm glad we have Wendy on to 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 help us because this is exactly in her wheelhouse and as far as the best way of electing senators I'm I typically err more on the direct election side yeah but I'm kind of with Julia on the you know if if they can if there are real reasons to elect senators indirectly then let's explore those and consider those but based in part on on Wendy's uh, research in her writing I'm not what I'm very interested in exactly is what you just mentioned, Lee, the extent to which um, that that will impact their behavior. And you see, even in the um, even in the late 19th century, and Wendy can speak to this much more than I can, because I'm going to butcher her her writing and research. But the extent to which uh, partisanship and partisan considerations in, in the senator coming into play and in, and how it really is impacting what's it's happening. And I'm not sure you're going to get. A lot of different uh, a lot of different senators if all of a sudden we have indirect election. And if anything, if you think about the state party machines that control um, the different state parties in the various places in this country, and you think about your senators who are most staunchly in favor of federalism, think about a Jim DeMent for instance, right? Think about a Ted Cruz for instance, or a Mike Lee. Mike Lee's not getting nominated by Utah state legislature. Right, Bennett is, and I think that's an interesting wrinkle is, as well to consider. Um, but you know, let's transition now into our conversation. You know, why are we in this situation? Now, let's start in the present and kind of work our way back to the Seventeenth Amendment. And let's just start with Georgia, just because I think it's important. You know, why are there Wendy? Why are there two seats up for grabs? And you know how how does this Georgia mode of picking senators differ from other states? Because presumably we all pick them the same way, right?
3: Well, we, we think we do, but we don't quite. So this arises because one senator was incumbent, had a six-year term for due, and was up for re-election, and another senator was appointed after a senator who did not complete his term, uh, Isaacson retired early. So Kelly Loeffler was appointed to fill the seat. And we see a, a similar thing in Arizona this year, because you might wonder why uh, Mark Kelly got sworn in right after the election when we wait until January to have members of Congress um, uh, who are elected sworn in. So when you fill a, a seat that has not been full term, uh, then you have a, spe- called a special election. Some states hold that election, as Massachusetts did almost a decade ago, at an odd time. And other states hold it when the next regularly scheduled uh, federal election will be held because elections are expensive to hold. So a lot of states don't see the point in having some extra separate election to fill a Senate seat. They are going to wait until uh, we have a regular federal election. So that's what happened in Georgia. But in Georgia, the rules are you need to get 50% of the vote to avoid a runoff. It's an interesting thing because, and I think um, um, each of you can contribute to this, it actually harkens back to... The the days when the party conventions were really powerful in nominating people, starting in the late 19th century and all the way through most of the 20th century in the South, and a lot of those conventions had a 50% rule threshold. Some had even higher, but 50% threshold where you had to win 50% it couldn't just be a plurality. So what happens in Georgia is that just at the very end of the vote counting, John Ossoff. Uh, got enough votes to deny Purdue 50%, which means he entered the runoff. I think people always thought because Doug Collins, a Republican, and Kelly Loeffler, and Ralph Warnoff were running at the same time in their election for the special seat, this would be an automatic runoff, uh, and they would definitely need one. But with an incumbent, it's unusual to have to take that election to a runoff. That's why you have both of these seats up for
0: grabs in this runoff in Georgia.
3: Julia? Yeah, I
1: have a bunch of things that, that I want to ask because this is such a, like, so, this is always something I have to explain to my students here in um, in Wisconsin um, about kind of what are other states doing and this runoff institution is really kind of wild, um, even to us here who have, have elections like every 20 minutes and nonpartisan primaries until the cows come home. Um, but this is, I mean, in some ways this sort of like, of a piece of those types of, um, of multi-round elections. But on the other hand, have a very kind of distinct history. So one of the pieces that of this history that I've been kind of fascinated by is the roots of the runoff elections in, um, kind of post-civil rights movement, um, racism and maintenance of, um of white supremacy. Sorry, those of you who listen to the podcast regularly know that I have a cat named Sydney who sometimes likes to join in and today is one of those days. Um, so if you hear meowing, that's, that's a cat. Um, yeah, so I'm, I don't know that I have a particular question, but I'm curious, Wendy, if you could kind of elaborate on, um, on the history of, of runoff elections as a, a way of preventing black candidates from, um, from winning office and, and preserving kind of white control of the political system in these States after the civil rights movement.
3: Well, I think we should look at Louisiana because I think it's a perfect uh, sort of example uh, it starts out. I think you're absolutely right of changing the rules because once you have the Voting Rights Act, really that that is fully implemented. And let's let's for argument's sake say that it doesn't really get fully implemented in terms of black mobilization and and, a, and sort of making sure black voters could vote till the late 1970s. Right, it passes uh, 1965, but it does not really hit its stride until the late 1970s, early 1980s. And at that point, certainly white conservative. Uh, uh, politicians in the Democratic Party, particularly in the South, do not want uh, African-Americans to be able to win a plurality and win an election because of sheer population size of African-American voters in the Deep South in particular. And we go back to V.O. Key, Southern Politics and State and Nation, to think about that dynamic of having so many voters who will now actually be in the system. So I think you're absolutely right. But then it's later in the 90s, you can argue late 90s, it's used to sort of edge out people who aren't as conservative as they want them to be. So Mary Landrieu, for example, and even at the congressional level in the runoffs, you think, okay, well, you used to be able to win if you were, you know, moderate, and you could win a plurality more than the other person. But if you set that threshold, and the states are moving in a more conservative direction, you still need to actually probably move a little further to the right. And that ends up, I think, making the uh, Democratic Party sort of unable to win in the end of the day. And Republicans, depending on how um, conservative they want it to be, uh, much easier for them to win. So I think it's a combination of the legacy of white supremacy, but then moving into finding a way in a state where a region where voters are shifting from the Democrats to the Republicans and uh, staying conservative and getting more conservative on other issues to make sure that a charismatic uh, person who was moderate but not conservative couldn't walk away, in particular, with a governor's seat or a Senate seat.
0: That's fascinating that institutions have impacts beyond the things for which they were originally designed. Who knew, uh, Lee?
3: <laughs> Can I jump
1: in with a, oh, yeah. With just like a quick response? I, I was thinking about this, James, when you were talking about the Utah case and this, the way in which senators are selected and kind of the way in which direct versus indirect representation has kind of become associated with these different with with ideology right and when do your comments speak to that to some extent too um and i don't again i don't really have a well formulated question we're we're in end of semester mode sorry but it it seems to me like on the one hand this you know this is true, and on the other hand, it also seems like there's a dynamic in which increasingly more conservative Republicans get elected through these through these types of um, of more direct methods, and that's perhaps exacerbated by this by this runoff situation. Um, but also, you get into kind of a situation in which once someone has been elected to office, you have this kind of recurring. You know, then they're part of the establishment, and I feel like we have this recurring pattern among congressional Republicans where someone is kind of elected through um, being the most conservative. They run to the right. They're part of the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus, whatever. Um, and then they're then they're establishment, and someone challenges them to the right, um, and and also with this sort of outsider kind of um, kind of appeal that's linked up with conservative authenticity. So I don't know if the runoff specifically affects that but it strikes me as kind of a as kind of a dynamic that's important as we think about the impact of um of direct selection
3: i i you know i think one of our one of our challenges as political scientists is always sort of thinking okay how much do we take particular cases and particular years and think okay what are the trends here and i i think the larger point um, that Julia's raised is a fantastic point about how you know electoral mechanisms and uh, really can both create openings for particular types of candidates and preclude victory by other kinds of candidates, but the, but in this case in Georgia, to get back to Georgia, I was surprised Doug Collins didn't do better than he than he did in the election. He was just a, such a Trump cheerleader. In every way, I mean, he's a really out there kind of guy, extremely conservative, very vocal, made a fairly strong reputation for himself publicly anyway, as a vocal conservative in the House and, you know, didn't do as well as he should have, right? I mean, you would have thought he would have been able to beat Kelly Loeffler, even though Trump, you know, um, supported her uh, nomination and so Kemp obviously appointed her. But there was something about that that didn't go the way I would have expected if if our idea is that a direct election mechanism and a runoff election would privilege conservative candidates. So I think we have to throw in, or I believe we have to throw in personal animosity or personal like or charisma. I think about Arizona as well, which went in a different direction. Martha McSally loses barely to Christian Sinema. Then we have the death of John McCain. Then Martha McSally is appointed. This is a whole other level for the Senate, by the way, that maybe we can talk about in a different podcast about the power of governors to appoint and which states have restrictions on appointing the same party senator as the one that's vacated or not. But nonetheless, appointing Martha McSally was interesting because she was a Trump supporter, but never all that popular. Uh, You know, she just didn't quite take. And then you think, okay, well, that should have, you know, she should have won. And so then you think Mark Kelly won Arizona by much, many more votes than Trump got in Arizona, and he's not that conservative. So this is the sort of question mark I have about how we interpret uh, the mixture of uh, ideological positioning with personal characteristics in the minds of voters and how direct elections introduces all of that. When it really wasn't that—that that really wasn't part of the of the scenario when you had indirect elections.
2: So let's talk a little bit more about indirect elections because I, I I'm quite fascinated as I as I mentioned in the the initial comments with uh, this uh, popularity among conservatives. Uh, that, around the idea of, of repealing the 17th Amendment, something I, I hear a lot. So I, I'd love to kind of get your take, Wendy, on, on what you think is behind that and what what you think. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it's particularly likely, but what, what you think the, the effects of repealing the 17th Amendment might be were it to ever you know, actually happen.
3: Yeah, I mean, we know that Alec, which is you know a conservative uh, organization, has been promoting actively promoting, and Mike Lee, you mentioned earlier, has been a, 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 an interesting proponent of this, which is to return to a time when state legislators in in the context of the House and Senate elect senators. And uh, there's there's a couple of things here uh, about the the consequences of returning to that. But first, really quickly. This system was so dysfunctional from 1789 to 1866, so dysfunctional. They, state legislators met really infrequently, and when they met, they sort of came up with their own internal rules about how somebody could be nominated uh, to be considered for a Senate seat, or whether there was a gateway of nomination process, the rules in the caucus, the party caucuses to get the nomination. Some states like Florida had two thirds of the caucus had to vote for you in the party to get the nomination and others had no gatekeeping at all. It was a mess, it was a mess. So in 1866, as a result of of really incredible corruption in New Jersey uh, and the election of John Stockton and the sort of the seating of John Stockton not the Utah Jazz uh, basketball player for those of you a certain age. But so we have this controversy and so the Congress says this is ridiculous and the senators decide We want a more regulated system because it's easier for us to win re-election if we know how the system's going to work, going to work. So everybody, all states after 1866, uh, due to congressional law, had to have the same system, which is you met on the second Tuesday after you convened your new legislative session. And for most states, but not all, that was in January. And remember, people were seated in March, but the Southern states, by the way, frequently met in April and May, which created interesting uh, problems. But you you had to, on the second Tuesday at noon, each chamber would separately vote for senator. Now that senator had to get a majority. That's part of the rule. It's not a plurality, a majority. So that's sort of the precursor of a runoff. And you had to get, the same person had to get a majority in each chamber. And if they failed, uh, to agree. And the same person did not get a majority in each chamber. Every day thereafter, they would convene together and joint an assembly uh, at noon and vote for Senate. And in, you know, 69, 70% of the cases, they pretty much got it done, either it got done that day or it got done the next day. But 30% of those elections from 1870 to 1913 resulted in battles. You know, joint session balloting over and over and over again, And it's fascinating because many of them had a clear majority in the party, but there wasn't enough agreement in the party. So when you think about the chaos that could ensue um, from that system, even though the majority threshold is one that's a really important one, and it was dictated by the Congress, there was a steady law, you still had a lot of extended balloting and you had deadlocks. You had a lot of vacancies where they would just go home after a couple of months and say, we can't agree. We can live without a senator, in case of Delaware, they lived without two senators um, for a while and we'll come back and we'll do it next time. So there's potential for chaos. Second, representation. You think about it, there's about 24 to 25% of all state legislators are women. About 18 to 19% of all state legislators are um, uh, considered a member of an underrepresented group. If you move back to a system where senators are selected in state legislatures, you are, going to re- you are going to necessarily, I think, reduce certainly the impact of women who want to vote for women. And you'll also reduce, you may not reduce the impact of uh, underrepresented groups, depending on that population size and distribution in each state. But nonetheless, I think you'll go backwards in terms of descriptive representation. You know, and, as in, and some of you also will remember, in 1987, there were two female senators, two, you know, not 25, not 26 that we have today, but two. And in the House, there were only 23 women at the time. But if you think about what could happen going backwards to state legislatures, I think you could get more chaos and you could get uh, worse descriptive representation. Here's what the good news would be. The good news would be, you would get many fewer unfunded mandates. Now, unfunded mandates became a real sort of catchphrase in the 1980s with the Reagan administration. And then of course, subsequent to that, Republicans and Democrats, and state governors and legislators always complain that the federal government requires them to do things without giving them sufficient money. You're certainly hearing that, obviously, in dealing with the COVID pandemic. That, I think, would be greatly diminished. I I think that, in fact, this would become an issue, and you would have state legislators asking senators to pledge before the election in the state legislature that they would vote against any and all unfunded mandates. And that would have an effect on the deficit. I think states have to balance their budget. They play some tricks with it, but they have to balance their budget. And the federal government doesn't. And I think states, especially conservative fiscal states, would put a lot of pressure on senators to say, listen, we're not going to elect you to promise to cut the deficit. Uh, and I think that, that could actually have a, a significant impact over time on federal spending. So it isn't all one way or the other in terms of what I think the big impacts would be to go back, and some people might say revert, but
0: just to go back to a system of indirect election. Well, it you know a lot of interesting points there, and it certainly could lead to uh, fewer unfunded mandates, or it could lead to more funded mandates. You know, when I think back to my days in the Senate, and the county commissioners would come in and asking for new interchanges and new bridges. It was always the the state and local um, uh, political officials who were asking for the most money. Very rarely were they coming in saying, "We just want you to spend less." And now, granted, they would like you to spend money from somewhere else and not from from them, or force them to make these difficult decisions. But but I do take your point, and and this would certainly impact cooperative federalism in, in many interesting ways. But turning to the consequences and the of the different modes of electing senators, and a lot of this obviously is, is speculation because we can't run these experiments, but. You know your book with Charles Stewart electing the Senate. First of all, is a fabulous book. I, I recommend it uh, to to all of our listeners. It was it's an excellent book and it's got an excellent cover. It's one of the few books that I've been reading because usually for those of you who read political science books, the covers aren't the best, most interesting. And my wife looks at this and she goes, "That looks like an interesting book." And so that is a huge compliment um, to to you, Wendy and, and and Charles for for your book. But it is a fabulous book and. In the book, you, you talk about how the information environment changes as a result of the 17th Amendment. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, Wendy, both how it changed and what the consequences were, and then maybe speculate a bit on what the information environment today would, what this current information environment, what what consequences would flow from it if we go back to indirect elections.
3: Um, that's, a, that's a that's a great question. I have to give all credit to Charles Stewart, who found that uh, illustration from the 1880s, and it's just this great disappointment Uncle Sam has in all these state legislators, um, legislators that are fighting over Senate elections. So um, all credit to him. On uh, I agreed to the cover, but that's. Uh, but uh, it's, it is a terrific cover. So, so I, I think you're asking a really, really fascinating question. And I want to go back to something that was said earlier. Uh, when you when you think about what the contest was about uh, between 1870 and 1913 for U.S. Senate seats, there is this idea that you know, and Eric Enstrom um, and Sam Cornell have this, and a couple of other people that these were fought nationally. That the idea was that there was a stake a national control of the Senate and that voters understood they should vote party line. We see the sort of cementing of the first waves of polarization in this period of time, and they wanted to vote party line and it mattered to them, uh, you know, that you voted for state legislators to be one party of the other uh, in order to send a particular Senator, a particular party. But but there's also the very proximate impact of state political parties wanting to shore up their own operation their own strength, their own uh, political capital, but they're also their own capacity and control over state patronage. And it was tied into the capacity to get out their vote, to win control of the state legislature, and also choose who would be Senator. And this is what the fascinating thing, places like Pennsylvania, for example, that is huge, a huge contest in the 1890s over this, but you see factions within uh, state political parties wanting to, to term, you know, be dominant in every way. So it's not just a capturing it for the party and and sending a Senator from your party to DC. It's as paramountly important to the state party to keep control of the state legislature and state government. And in that way, they, they would try to recruit people who are attractive Senate candidates to run. And then they would ask state legislators, hey, run with this person, pledge support, for this person, because we think this person can help us generate support among voters, but also win a majority in the state legislature. So some of that happened, but frequently you had people who were factionalized and part of a different faction and said, no, I'm gonna run, I'm gonna run and I'm gonna try to get state legislators to pledge to vote for me. But the, 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 the falsehood about these pledges of state legislators then voting for particular Senate candidates is that it fell apart once voting happened because the election happened in November and voting happened in January, sometimes actually as late as April or May, and by that time the universe of potential Senate candidates changed. It wasn't always the people who announced that they would run for Senate to be considered. The parties changed their mind, dynamics, money changed hands. So by the time you got to the set of people who were actually nominated and voted on the state legislature, it would frequently look quite different from those who had run previously. So, Our argument is that the sort of popular tie between voters and their senators gets quite distorted between November and January, and just in that mechanism of state political parties trying to maintain control. So in terms of information, you see the same thing today. You see the Georgia Republican Party wants to really, you know, rescue themselves from losing the the, the presidential election in Georgia. They want to show they're powerful. They want to show that they can win this election for all sorts of reasons, for lots of down ballot offices and also the governorship in 2022. So in the end, these runoffs actually right now are illustrating more of what used to happen under indirect elections in terms of the role of state political parties. And they are working hard uh, to either spread information that's accurate or inaccurate, but just as they did through um, newspapers in the late 19th century, which filtered down to people who weren't literate but would you know hear from workers or from their religious organizations or the communities who they should vote for there was a distorted informational environment then uh, and there's a distorted informational environment now
0: that's fascinating. I think you saw something similar in uh, in in Mississippi when thad Cochran was had a, a primary challenge and then a, in, in, a, in a runoff and then also in in Alabama with with Roy Moore as well. In the different dynamics, I mean, they're not the same, obviously, but different, um, different dynamics, but the party is, the state party, uh, distinct and separate from the national party, is, is taking a, a, a very interesting position and role in, in engaging in certain behavior at different times um, in the electoral campaign. Uh, It's fascinating, but Julia.
1: Yeah, so I actually wanted to ask um, a little bit about the work that you've done, Wendy, on on state delegations um, to the Senate. I'm now realizing I'm kind of always looking to like revamp the Congress section of the course I teach on American politics to to graduate students, and this looks like a um, like a contender because we have a really unique situation here in Wisconsin, which is I, I believe we have the most divided ideologically, we have the most ideologically divided uh, Senate delegation, maybe in the history of the country. Um, But I think certainly right now with Ron Johnson and and Tammy Baldwin. So I'm I'm curious kind of how maybe this has has changed over time and how the nationalization of, of politics and of congressional politics has shaped the relationships among senators from the same states.
3: Um, yeah, I, you know, delegations have always fascinated me. It was my it was my first book. My, my dissertation was on bill sponsorship in the Senate, but then I, I sort of graduated to the broader question of how, you know, the same geographic territories, the same district doesn't get redistricted, stays the same state boundaries and populations can change, but that takes a long time, you know, to have these two senators who don't run at the same time, a very smart and clever a structural invention by the founders to put senators in classes. They're all elected at the same time in 1789, but then they're put into classes one, two, and three, which dictate whether they'll be re-elected two, four, six years later. So being in different classes is a big deal. And so they have two people elected from the same place uh, for six-year terms, but they almost never run for re-election at the same time. There are some exceptions. So that's why George is so fascinating Because what happens over time is that no matter um, their political stripe or party or conservatism, they balance out and they balance out over time. You know, we've had about anywhere from 12 to 14 divided Senate delegations over time in the last 30 years. We we had um, more. We we would have had more if the the solid Democratic South wasn't conservative. uh, We would have had more. Right. You could have seen over time what you saw in the 80s. Where uh, black votes became really important in the South and started electing Democrats in the South, White Fowler in Georgia, for example, in 1986, Richard Shelby in Alabama in 1986 to replace Jeremiah Denton, who was, and Shelby was a Democrat at the time. And so then you start to see some differentiation, although they were Democrats, right? They were the same Democrats, but they started to sort of veer. And that comes to fruition in the 90s when Shelby switches parties, just emblematically of how uh, de- the demographics changed. So you'll have senators who have different parties, but maybe aren't that ideologically distinct. Um, And then you'll have uh, senators that are distinct by gender, but that's only a really recent phenomenon. Distinct by race or ethnicity, also uh, only a recent phenomenon. And in the end of the day, you have to get reelected on used to on your individual reputation. What have you done in the state? And the reason you have to do that is you have somebody else who comes before you, let's say you know a junior, junior, and you have a senior senator who's already there, who does things for the state. So what are you going to do that they don't do? And the reason you have to worry about that is the other party will find a way when states are competitive to run somebody who will say, "I will do more than you've done," because you haven't done anything. Your other colleague does a lot, but you don't do anything. So it, it, it lends itself to vulnerability at the primary stage and the general election stage. So senators actually do differentiate, even if it's the same party. Or opposite parties, at different committees, which is a Senate rule for the most part. And they come from different parts of the state. The most fascinating state in this case is Pennsylvania. The first senators, McClay and Morris, they were picked by the legislature as an absolute compromise. The West and the East of Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, Morris from the East and McClay from the West. And that has been functional in Pennsylvania for so long. I mean, it'd be fascinating now that, um, and Jim Wallner can uh, certainly comment on this, that Toomey is, is retiring, to see what happens in that delegation. Because Maryland is similar to New York, upstate, downstate. And even if you were not from upstate New York, Al D'Amato was from Long Island, and Moynihan was from New York City. D'Amato basically pretended to be a guy from upstate. Um, you saw Kirsten Gillibrand versus Chuck Schumer, again, a geographic divide. So even in this age of hyper-polarization, even in in this age of party signaling being so important in these elections, the bigger the state, and sometimes the small state, but bigger states, you still have to find a way to make the case that you'll do something uh, as good or better than your colleague, and you'll represent a different set of constituents and a different part of the state than your colleague. And this is still true. So it, it expands Senate representation across the delegation, even when you're from the same party. And that still holds. So I'm, I'm, I did an update, which is probably better for you to assign, rather than the whole book. Uh, in uh, 2011, in forum with Jennifer Cassidy, who's a, a grad student at Brown, we updated it. We just said, "Why? Well, right, let's take all the senators now and see if, if this still holds true. And, it, and it, it did. So the results hold. So that's what I find fascinating. You never see senators from the same state running at the same time in the same party as you are in Georgia. That they're running as teams is so striking to me. I don't understand it. David Perdue is an incumbent with a record. He could be running and saying, I've got this record. Here's all the things that I've done for you. Kelly Lauper can fend for herself. And the same is true on the other side. You know, Warnock and also seem to be differentiating more than, from each other. But why would they run together? Because it makes it harder for voters to say, yes, I want you in the United States Senate. And there are enough voters in Georgia we've seen that split their ticket in November of 2020 that those are up for grabs. So why not give them more choice?
0: I think that's especially interesting too when you think back to your your previous comments about the the different nuances within state parties and the different state interests at play. And, and the dynamics you mentioned are absolutely, uh, in my experience, Alabama. I mean, Jeff Sessions and Richard Shelby, there's this idea that you have senators from different parts of the state that will represent different parts of the state that the voters themselves have, that the interest in that state have. There was a big controversy when uh, when Jim DeMint defeated Hollings or when and he becomes the senator. And you have Lindsey Graham as a senator. So you have two upstate senators from from South Carolina. That's not supposed to happen. People in Charleston are saying, well, what about us? Where's our senator? And it's remarkable how in almost every state that you can think of, this kind of dynamic does persist even today. It's fascinating.
3: Yeah. And I'm curious if, if Lee Dropman wants to um, uh, he- chime in. I know he's, he's the author of a terrific, um, a big, big paper on uh, a on parties and third parties and sort of thinking about who gets represented. So, So when you think about this, Lee, what what do you see as any sort of avenue? You see Bernie Sanders, you see Angus King, they're really different kinds of politicians. Could Lisa Murkowski try to be an independent in Alaska, for example? And and what does that mean for appealing to voters in terms of representation? I'm curious what well, you think of
0: that. And technically Murkowski did win as an independent, in a, a right in Republican, I should say, but that was pretty remarkable. But Lee, I'm going to turn it to you to mention the doom loop.
2: Well, I mean, on Alaska, Alaskans just passed ranked choice voting. So it'll be interesting to see how Murkowski runs now that Alaska has ranked choice voting and a top four primary. I mean, frankly, I was surprised that Collins didn't run more as a kind of independent style candidate, uh, given that uh, Maine now has ranked choice voting, although she still managed to win. Um, But actually, I kind of wanted to, Go a little deeper. Uh, I may mean, have some thoughts on that—the um, the potential for for third parties. Uh, but I mean, my my argument is that you really need to have electoral reform uh, to make so make things more proportional. Uh, so I I, I want to, and one of the ways to do that, at least in the House, is to have multi-member districts. And you know, people say, "Oh, multi-member districts—that's strange." Uh, well, actually, we we had them for a long time in in the U.S., but we also have uh, Senate seats are effectively multi-member districts, although not maybe elected simultaneously. And the what you were describing about senators carving out different constituencies within a state uh, is somewhat consistent with what I understand about how. Uh, how members of uh, the the Irish Parliament uh, operate in multi-member districts with right choice voting, which is a system used in in Ireland. So I'm just sort of curious what we learn about how senators represent the same territory differently and how that might work in the House. I mean, do do you think it's you would because one of the the challenges I think with with individual House seats is that if you don't feel represented by the person who who won your district, you're you're basically out of luck. Whereas in the Senate, you know maybe I mean we, I know we have like I think we have like six split Senate delegations now, which is the lowest it's been in over a hundred years. But still, there are different there are different options for representation. So you know I wonder how you think about the potential for uh, multi-member districts in the House, and you know how you think that might change representation based on what you you know about representation in what what is effectively multi-member districts in the Senate?
3: Uh, That's a a great question. I I, I think to myself about the sort of intersection of the urban-rural divide, and certainly obviously going back to um, Bruce Hoffman and Francis Lee's 1999 book, Sizing Up the Senate, about uh, the impact of geography. And you think, well, in a place that has, you know, 11 million, you know, people in the city, for example, you can make a very strong argument, why are there you know, 12 different congressional districts? You have different neighborhoods, and you have a lot of people, but wouldn't it be better to have you know, one election where you had you know, five members who basically represented that, that district? Why carve up these really huge metropolises? And, and, and in that case, I think you know, it'd be interesting because you could then go to an argument to expand the House, from its current size, 135 members, and you think, okay, we don't wanna expand it just by population size. We wanna to say to ourselves, okay, well, we'll keep the same number of districts, but now we're gonna to think to ourselves, okay, does it make sense to have distinct congressional districts when they're basically the Upper West Side of Manhattan or the Upper East Side of Manhattan or the you know East and West Sides of LA or North and South uh, Dallas? I mean, what, what does that make any sense to anybody? doesn't make any sense so you can conceive of selling this idea about multi-member districts to people who live in big cities right because it's just easier right and then you don't feel maybe you have five people representing this one area you're more likely to get some of your views and interests represented and not feel disempowered disenfranchised by the other party's person winning so I think that's an idea. Now, rural people obviously will say we want no part of this. I mean, Greg, as Greg Adams actually has a great article on multi-member districts uh, prior, I think, to 1860. And basically, you know, rural people don't necessarily want multi-member districts per se, because when you have you know one member from Vermont or one member from Wyoming or something like that, you you know, you, that person's elevated in their status. So. So I think it's pretty complicated based on the differential population size, but I think that the house is just simply, well, it's another podcast, but I think the house just doesn't function anymore. I think any sort of sense of representation, given the size of districts, 711,000 people, it's going to get bigger after the next um, uh, redistricting. You can't know your constituents and you're so busy running and it's partisan and polarized you know, how much, you know, of this localized Madisonian representation can actually happen. And I don't think, I think that's where you can make an argument. You would get better and more effective representation in the House if you actually expanded the district size and the number of members in a single district, uh, because then they'd be a voting block. And maybe you would start to see more cohesiveness across voting blocks of members of the House who come from particular types of districts.
2: Well, amen to that. Um, I, I'm a big... Enthusiast of expanding the size of the house. In fact, we we did an earlier episode on increasing the size of the house. I wrote a, an article in the Washington Monthly a few, few years ago, arguing we should have 1,600 members in the house, which may be expanding the Overton window a bit. But I, I, I couldn't agree with you more there. I mean, the, the U.S. is a tremendous outlier uh, in having such large uh, groups of people representing. I think we're like three times as large as Japan, which is the next largest... Well, except for India, but that's India has a very different, uh, much more federal system.
3: Yeah, And just returning just really quickly uh, uh, to Julia's point, earlier point about ideology. You know, you look at Kentucky, you know, really thinking about that ideology. Right. So McConnell is this, you know, standard, not standard, but, you know, power guy, you know, controls power, but brings a lot home to Kentucky and ran his campaign this year. Saying, "Listen, you don't want to get rid of me. I bring a lot home." Whereas Rand Paul is libertarian and sort of disavows legislative district initiatives and um, and uh, disavows sort of federal spending. So, what does Rand Paul do for Kentucky? What does Rand Paul run on for Kentucky? They're very different, but they're both Republican. But they have such different personas in Kentucky. So, and you can point to states all across the country like that. And I think that's what sustains the dimensionality of Senate representation, even at a time when we, we sort of, you know, belie and, and complain about the polarization, you still see at the very least stylistic, but also substantive differences, even in Rhode Island, of what people do. Jack Reed does things very differently from Sheldon Whitehouse, and yet, we probably have very similar voting records. And on the note about six um, split delegations, one thing that has happened that is doesn't counter it necessarily, but has really changed a lot is male female delegations and female delegations. There's a number of, it was six, I think it might still be six, six delegations that have all women. And and then you have a lot more women in the Senate. So you have a lot more split gender delegations and split race delegations or ethnicity delegations. And that didn't exist certainly 30 years ago. And it absolutely, obviously didn't exist under indirect elections. And that brings another dimensionality to Senate representation that didn't exist before.
0: So this is a, a great segue into I think the kind of last at least question that that I have and um, but or at least the last topic I think that's on my mind here, which is this idea of dysfunction. And you write a great you you, you wrote a great um, chapter in the in the new edition of Congress Reconsidered with Larry Evans on on Senate dysfunction. And I'm I'm intrigued by this notion of the extent to which different ways of picking senators will have different impacts on how senators behave. And I think this comes out a little bit, or comes out in your book with with Charles and electing the Senate. But when I think about the Congress today, and this is my main issue with with Lee and, and more parties, I mean, I'm all for more parties. I'm just not sure it'll have an impact if the partisans all act the same way our partisans do now. But if we think about, say, you know, Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell, for instance. I mean, Rand Paul's inaugural speech in the Senate is about how much Henry Clay is a compromiser and he doesn't like him. And that's one, it's kind of odd for somebody from Kentucky. But two, it's Mitch McConnell loves Henry Clay, right? He portrays himself as someone who's very different than Mitch McConnell, but he acts very, I mean, they act in almost, and in, they, they're indistinguishable, right? And maybe early on, there's, there's times here and there that they're not. And when you have senators who are acting the same way in this current environment, um, and I would add that Democrats act just like Republicans as well. They may vote differently, but they also have a role in deciding what they vote on. And then on that, they all act the same. And, and that is that they do not act. And so I guess my question is, can we expect that to change if we go to a different if we for instance conservatives want to repeal the 17th amendment something i'm not i don't agree with but if we do repeal the 17th amendment what will the senate still be dysfunctional and if so how or why
3: so if we repeal the 17th amendment would the senate still be dysfunctional you know i i i think it would be it would be you know it depends if you agree and this is a, a larger point maybe for a different conversation also if you agree with the new uh, argument, new book by uh, Francis Lee and Jim Curry, that you know there's more produced by the Congress than we think, certainly in um, Laurel Harbridge made this argument too in her book a couple of years ago, uh, that there's, there is more produced than we think and that they act when they have to act. But I get the sense, I believe that if state legislatures, if senators had to go back to state legislatures, now remember, especially now, State legislators tend to to serve about eight to 12 years. That's the average of how long they stay in in the state legislature. So when they elect Senator at time T, they will be there six years later to judge that Senator. That was not the case um, before the 17th amendment. The average length of time was usually uh, one term, maybe two. So usually the Senate legislature, I'm sorry, the state legislature was very different in composition when the Senator went back to be reelected. And many of them, 70% of them ran for reelection in those days. So when you think about it, they're going to be there and they're going to judge that senator and say, A, did you do anything for us? And B, how did you govern? How did your party govern? And and you may say, well, national trends will either sweep in or sweep out effective parties at the same time at the national and state level. I'm not disputing that per se, but I think there would be a stronger sense of accountability to a more informed and a sort of more political, more um powerful uh, set of people than than voters themselves so i I think you could find a a, a slightly more responsive Senate uh, to at least state legislatures now whether that means they're responsive to the general public or the median voter, that's another question but but that they pay more attention to governance and the, the incredible dependence that states have on the federal government to function. I think that would increase if you went back. To electing senators in state
0: legislatures, I want to underscore your when the word you mentioned informed, more informed. In state legislatures, uh, legislators are more informed, or they certainly have different uh, priorities or or focus on a certain set of issues than say the general public would. One would imagine, and I think that's that information environment too, coming back that you and then Charles write about, and that would certainly I think have an impact on things like earmarks. I would imagine it would be very difficult for a Senate that is elected by state legislatures uh, to ban earmarks, for instance. Um, But you can think of a whole host of issues that would be higher on the priority scale, uh, presumably. But at core, the question is whether or not the Senate would then act, right? I mean, is, is the reason why the Senate's not acting going to be cured because state legislators are now voting for them? And I'm not sure I... Know the answer to that question. I think you're you're right in many respects, um, but it's something I'm still still thinking through.
3: Uh, to your point, politically, you could also envision a circumstance where this would pull state senators even further to the left or the right. Because if you had a, a caucus in the state legislature, for example, that was very liberal but came from a very populous part of the state and wanted things from the senator. They would demand those things, and if they didn't get them, they would actually just sort of replicate the behavior we saw in the 19th century, which is to say, we're not voting for you next time, so you can't get a majority. We'll peel away enough votes to make sure you can't get a majority, and we'll field somebody else, and we'll keep doing this until we get a sense that you will actually do what we need you to do, and you'll have to promise that. So you could see polarization increase depending on the factionalization of the state legislature and how many sort of people could break off and decide they want to be spoilers and nominate somebody else. And remember, it would look like a runoff primary. I mean, that's what it would look like. There'd be no gatekeeping to running for Senate and state legislature unless they impose some in this new reversion, in this new scheme. But otherwise it would look like Georgia. It would look like go and run and anybody can run and the parties wouldn't have a, a good opportunity to stop it. So you could see increased polarization uh, as also under certain certain certain
0: conditions. And it would certainly be difficult, and this gets to Julia's, uh, some things that Julia's been hammering on in past episodes as well, and the ability of parties to handle intra-party divisions and factions, and, and parties aren't equipped to, to deal with those uh, kinds of issues very well. And so, Julia, I wondered if you have any last questions here for Wendy.
1: Yeah, so I'm puzzling on... Um on all of these things, and I know, I know Lee wants to kind of talk about um, legitimacy crisis to bring us home, but I'm going to just step on Lee's toes um, and, and bring ow, and bring ow, it ow. up. Oh, of course, um, of <laughs> course, of course, we had sound effects. Uh, <laughs> no, I but I've been thinking a lot about this because I, I, I guess was this your thread, Lee, on Twitter like yesterday about changing the Senate? Um, yes. We had this whole discussion about changing the Senate, and I'm also, I'm coding open-ended data about, not really about Congress, what people think about political parties, and I'm kind of really steeped in the sense of um, illegitimacy (laughs) that people think of in American politics. So I guess I kind of want to step on the toes of the legitimacy crisis question and ask about whether, you know, whether it would ever be feasible in American politics to move back to a more indirect kind of representation or whether we're just totally whether that's totally um off the table.
3: Well, um you know, thinking about thinking about it, I I think you you know, there, we think we when we say the Senate, we always think sort of nationally. We're always looking at, at the Senate in Washington and sort of saying, "Okay, um what are they doing collectively? The Senate itself as an institution, the House as an institution." Uh, But I also like to really hammer home to voters and and people thinking about this, you have to also step up and demand more of your senator. And so what we'd be doing is transferring that responsibility to demand more of a senator directly to state legislators to say, okay, now not only do you have to do your job as a state legislator, but you also have to regard, you have to protect and um, represent our interests at the national level. You have to hold that senator accountable. You have to hold that person's feet to the fire and make sure they do their job. So maybe that's something, an abrogation of responsibility we don't wanna do. We want voters to be um, engaged and make sure that they can hold senators accountable, but given the information environment and given how distorted it is now, not just with big money spending, but also social media, uh, it may be in the interest of, of the things that need to get done to make the polity function, that we have to go back to a time when we take that responsibility away from voters. You know, it's it's it's. Yeah, I think of Vermont, for example, and these, this has huge implications for national politics, even at the state level. When Bernie Sanders, as an independent House member, then runs for Senate and wins in Vermont, you know, he does, to my knowledge, not a whole lot of constituent service for Vermont. It's not a huge state population size. It's a pretty big state geographically. But Pat Leahy had been senator forever by the time he got there and is still senator and does everything they need, mostly agriculture and trade. So what does Bernie do? Bernie has the luxury of constructing what is essentially a completely ideological career. And then he takes that to the national level and pretty much disrupts the Democratic Party in uh, 2016. And so the actual consequences of not having held Bernie Sanders more accountable for what he did for Vermont as a senator you know, obviously can have big uh, impacts on the national political scene. So there are real reasons to say, how do we increase state accountability, voters and or state legislators on senators to make sure that they are attending to their state's constituents' needs?
0: Jonathan Mayhew in 1766 and his Thanksgiving sermon, Wendy, you got me thinking here. He says, history, one may presume to say, affords no example of any nation, country or people long free who did not take some care of themselves. And so it ultimately does all come back to the voters and and the state legislatures and everybody else in between. But uh, Lee, have any questions here?
2: All right. Well, now that my toes are are in deep pain, I think I think I may have broken a bone here, Julia. But I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Um, but but actually, I want to go go more on the legitimacy crisis and the legitimacy crisis about the Senate uh, that I, I was thinking about was is actually well, actually two legitimacy crisis crises. One is just the sort of broad dysfunction, and yes, you know to. Uh, you know the Senate does a few things, but when it comes to kind of meeting the challenges that we expect the Senate to to deal with, uh, and, and when we really look at the denominator as opposed to just the numerator, I think the Senate is is failing. Uh,
0: the heart building and, has not been covered back up.
2: Yes, I know. I also worked in the heart building. It is. Yes, it is, it is still uncovered. It is, and, and, is and still uncovered. And still un- uninspiring. Um, but the other legitimacy crisis is the, the fact that the uh, partisan bias of the Senate is increasingly tilted to to one party, the Republican Party, so that the Republican Party can consistently win a minority of, represent of a representative, my, minority of, of actual people in the Senate and still hold a majority of the seats in the Senate. So I, as Julia was mentioning, I did put out a, a prompt on Twitter the other day, which asked for, you know, what what would be one constitutional amendment uh, that would uh, anybody would, would put out to um, Change the Senate, uh, which is something I've been thinking a lot about. Which is, what do what do you do about the Senate, or do you do anything about the Senate? And there were sort of three categories of responses. One was just abolish the Senate, which is a previous episode in which we discussed uh, that, uh, although it's not particularly practical. Two was a sort of uh, a set of of recommendations for the Senate to just have fewer powers. Sort of some some people suggested it become more like a House of Lords. Some people suggested more like the the German Upper Chamber, which I'll botch the pronunciation on, uh, so I'll avoid that. Uh, and then three was a category of suggestions about change, some some way in which changing how senators are elected. Uh, Julia's suggestion in that thread was that we should add fifty seats for the fifty largest cities. Uh, Norm Ornstein had an interesting proposal for national at large senators as well as some regional. Senators, uh, I have been pers- personally musing uh, uh, around on the idea of just adding a class of uh, just fifty national senators elected uh, via party list, like uh, like New Zealand or, or Germany, as compensatory seats, a sort of mixed member proportional system. Uh, and then they would be tasked with representing all the states equally to to um, be compliant with the uh, Article five provision that no state shall be deprived of equal representation in the Senate. Uh, I, I wonder if you've ever given this question any thought, Wendy, or have any uh, any sort of top of mind, th- top of mind thoughts on ways uh, if you were given the magical power of amending the Constitution to to change how we elect or run the Senate.
3: Well, I would change that provision that no state can vote to reduce its influence vis-a-vis any other state, uh, which, of course, is a really big uh, hurdle, because I think it should be proportional. I think you could come up with a system that says, okay, states of this population class have two senators and then this population class have four senators from that state. And then, you know, California may have eight senators. You know, you think to yourself, okay, we want to have this six year term because it's longer than the president and it's longer than the House. And there's an important, I think, element to that that can be stabilizing against swings in the House or swings from president. So I think the six-year term is essential. Uh, I don't think it's too long. I think it's exactly right. But I I think it's just become, you know, arc- arcane in its mismatch. Not not so much the Republican tendency to represent the minority of voters and get the majority control of the Senate. I, I get that. But even just a lot more largely that, Two senators from California can't represent 38 million people very well. Uh, and so unlike the governor who's singularly accountable, it you gets lost in the shuffle. And the, the thing I worry about is if you abolish the filibuster, for example, in the Senate altogether, and I understand lots of controversy over the filibuster, but if you abolish it altogether, you just get a glorified house for longer. You get polarization, majority party politics, and there's absolutely no difference between the house and the Senate. Except the Senate's slightly smaller. And then I think you get no reason for the Senate to exist at all. You know, just go to a unicameral legislature and get rid of the Senate. So, So I think there are ways in which you could try to fix the Senate that would end up neutralizing the Senate to the point where you lose that pretty important six year body. At least a third of them at any given time are there for six years. And the fact that not all of them are up for re election at the same time is also super important for thwarting you know, the most extreme proposals that might come from the other branches of government.
0: Thinking about the proportionality of the Senate, I mean, the office space is certainly proportional. The budgets are, are proportional, but the, obviously the representation is not. Uh, we have we have an episode where we talk about this uh, to a great deal as well. As we, you know, I want to kind of just take our, get our last thoughts here, you know, we're running short on time and I want to give Wendy, I want to give you the last word and, but I've really been thinking through a lot of the different ins and outs of this issue um, as we've had this conversation and and it's been a great conversation there's a lot I still need to think through and I think you've really emphasized the importance of looking at at senators as individuals uh, the importance of looking at states as complex entities, as state parties as complex entities and uh, so that you can appreciate the dynamics that play out when individuals representing complex entities elected at different times um, interact with one another and their colleagues. And that really draws my, you know, draws out how I think about reform writ large. And it can be reform in terms of how to make the Senate a better place. It can be constitutional amendments, a whole host of things. But typically, the way I look at it is there's a very simple question. Will this make it easier or harder for individual senators to act or for their voters to demand that they act? And, you know, right now I see senators in action as being one of the major major problems, and from a very metaphysical standpoint, you can almost say the Senate has already been abolished because when Senators stop being senators, and granted they're still confirming people and they're still doing other things, but when they're when they stop doing the things for which their institution was designed, then the institution itself kind of disappears, and it doesn't mean it can't come back and and I think it can, and I fully expect it to. Um, at some point. But but the reforms that will make that happen, it will facilitate that, um, are the reforms that will facilitate action. Not a particular kind of action, not a particular kind of action to achieve a particular end, but just action. That's all we need. And that's, I think, what we're we're missing today. But with that, I want to turn to Julia and then you, Lee, and, and Wendy, I want to give you the last words here on anything that we're missing or that we should be looking into and paying attention to that we're not.
1: Yeah, so just two kind of disconnected things. One one is, I, I think I'm going to be thinking for a long time about this point that you made, Wendy, about the Senate being responsive to, if, if they were to be responsive to state legislators, you know, how they might behave differently if they were actually being responsive to other elites. I've, I've been really skeptical of any notion of moving back to back to indirect um, representation, but I think that's a really interesting point. Um that I hadn't, I hadn't thought about. Um, the other thing I I wish that we had had more time to talk about, uh, demographics and delegations and actually about, I wish that I had asked you earlier about race and, and the Senate. So maybe, maybe that would be a good topic for a special podcast. Um, because it is fascinating to me just how, and how, how um, little racial diversity there has been in the Senate. And one thing that my students and I were paying a little bit of attention to was the South Carolina Senate race and, and something that we won't see, um, but that that looked like maybe at least a remote possibility, which was an all African-American Senate delegation. If, if Jamie Harrison had won um, his his challenge to Lindsey Graham, um, so he would have joined Tim Scott. As uh, South Carolina's other senator, um, as our listeners probably know, but in case they don't. Um, And, you know, I just, I don't know, again, that I really have a a sharp question about that. Um, I just think it's interesting, and someday I hope to get to talk to you some more about it.
2: So... Uh, I'll say a few words. Uh, James, to to you and your point about why aren't uh, Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell going at it more, I, I mean, my sense is they're going at it a little bit more in private, but because they're in the same party, they don't go, go at it so much in public. But if they were in different parties, I think they'd go at it a lot more in public. And so you would see a lot more action if they were in different parties. The, the thing that, that I, I really take away from this conversation, and, and thank you for this perspective, Wendy, is, you know, thinking about representation beyond geography. I mean, I think the way our political system is set up that is that the primary basis of representation is geographical. We elect senators from states, we have electoral colleges that represent states, we have uh, members of Congress who represent districts. But what, what this perspective of, particularly about the diversity within state delegations, uh, ideologically, demographically, regional, even regionally within states, uh, it really really highlights to me something that I've been thinking about for a while, which is that the, the geographic bases of representation uh, that we use in, increasingly don't fit with the way uh, that representation actually functions in, in our, in our minds and, and collectively. And, you know, I think that this really helps to, you know, furthers, you know, my, my own concerns about using geography as the basis of, as the exclusive basis of representation in our political system.
0: Wendy?
3: Yeah. uh, The last word, uh, is that I'll just leave you with this one striking example of how, even though everything has changed, I could argue, you know, in the last 25 years or 30 years in the Senate, when Harry Reid came to the Senate in 1987, he was elected in 86, he was a House member from Nevada. He started filibustering and preventing the deposit of Yucca Mountain, nuclear waste, nuclear waste on Yucca Mountain. And he blocked it for as long as he was in the Senate. And he left, he retired. And Jackie Rosen came into the Senate And literally the minute she was sworn in, I mean, it was almost no time at all. um, uh, And and her her predecessor, uh, Masto, uh, Catherine Cordes Masto, they immediately sent the same letter Harry Reid would send to the Department of Energy and Department of Interior, trying to block the the deposit of nuclear waste on Yucca Mountain. Literally took over the exact same, you know, massive representative uh, advocacy that Harry Reid did. And it was like seamless. This was such a paramount issue for Nevada. It didn't matter who senator, they were going to do that. They were always going to do that. Different different genders, different uh, you know age cohorts, it didn't matter. And so I still think there is a strain in Senate representation across all states where there are paramount state interests that we may not hear a lot about in this age of polarization that are still advocated for and are still represented and are still pushed for by senators. And I think if we knew a little bit more about that uh, I think senators will be more encouraged to do more of that. And that may bring back some more of what uh, James Warner has been talking about that seems to be lost in the United States Senate today.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. I want to encourage our listeners to uh, check out Wendy's work. It'll be in the show notes. And uh, this has been another uh, excellent episode of Politics in Question.
2: Thank you for listening to Politics in Question the show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
3: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.